Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Trip Tripathy. He's the head of the CEO advisory practice at Kaufman Rawson. He advises always be learning and don't be afraid to take on new opportunities. Follow the path new opportunities lead you down. Welcome to the Indispensables. I have as our guest for this episode, Trip Tripathy. Trip is a strategic and operational business leader with exceptional US and global experience with Fortune 500 companies, including PepsiCo and Macy's. He's been in several C-level roles, including CEO, COO, CFO, uh, Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, He's a business consulting services principal with Miami-based Kaufman Rawson, a top CPA advisory firm uh, where he leads the CEO board and shareholder advisory practice. Um, I'm proud to have uh, Kaufman Rawson as a client, and I am proud to have Trip Tripathy on the Indispensables as a guest. Welcome, Trip. Thank you so much, Bruce. I'm really glad you invited me to be here. Um, and and, and uh, uh, I'm delighted to have you. And uh, after uh, we uh, got to know each other, uh, I just thought you'd be perfect because you have been, uh, forgive me, you have been around the block, man. <laughs> That's funny. I guess I have. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so please uh, uh, tell, tell, tell us your story. If you've, you've had so many high level roles, maybe you can uh, explain sort of how you've gotten to where you are. Uh, well, Bruce, first of all, um, I grew up in India, right? And uh, the biggest uh, thing my parents uh, had me focus on was getting a great education. Uh, and that's what I did. And so when I graduated uh, school there, uh, I went into the chartered accountancy program, really rigorous program for three years, uh, worked in India for all of two years, uh, and then decided to come to the United States, me and my wife, to go to grad school. And so we showed up here, you know, bright and early one one morning in Fort Worth, Texas, to go to school at TCU. And what year was that? That was, I'm going to really date myself here. So that was 1985. And what's, what's interesting was I picked, uh, everyone asked me, why TCU? Well, it, the Texas economy at the time, not two years later, but at the time was booming. And uh, I also had no money. And here was a school that was willing, if I had terrific grades and performance, uh, was willing to front me in, in the form of financial aid. And so I came to uh, Texas in 1985, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, went to school for two years. And what's funny is having picked Texas for a booming economy, I graduated into a failing economy because the Texas economy was in shambles two years later. Because of oil and gas or? It It was the real estate crisis, the savings and loan crisis, oil and gas. What a mess. <laughs> what a mess. But, you know, even in, in adversity, uh, there is opportunity. And I'm a big believer in that because although it was a different world that I graduated into, 
it resulted in joining a great company, Pricewaterhouse, which had in Dallas, which had started a new practice uh, that dealt with business turnarounds, bankruptcies, uh, and commercial litigation. And uh, that was my first job in the United States, you know, so, uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was, uh, I, I hate to say it was a lot of fun because they were all, of course, difficult business situations, but I learned a lot. You know, I really had to roll up the sleeves, work with some very smart people uh, and work on helping businesses turn around and succeed, either by staying out of bankruptcy or going into bankruptcy. So lots and lots of you know strategic planning, rethinking uh, business models, uh, restructuring the financial side, you know, looking forward into what the business could be, translating it into financial terms, and eventually helping them uh, get out of bankruptcy. Yeah, and so you're you're, you're sort of learning from people's adversity you're helping them learn uh, from their adversity and navigate their way out of trouble absolutely you know there are two ways of looking at situations like that as a professional one is to say wow what a great opportunity for me to do well and make money and you know all of that that is true on the other hand i think you're a better consultant and professional if you have empathy uh, for your clients and their situation empathy for companies, for individuals who work in the company, individuals who leave those companies. And it's very satisfying and fulfilling if you're actually able to help them. So, so okay, so how long were you at Pricewaterhouse? I was there about three years. And uh, as I mentioned, it was a terrific start to my US career. And uh, I got promoted a couple of times in that short three-year period. And uh, as I said, exposure to some really good people. I'm still in touch with my first boss. Just spoke to him uh, uh, last weekend. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate in having mostly good bosses throughout my career. Not always, but mostly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so where'd you go from Pricewaterhouse? So, uh, you know, I had no intentions of leaving Pricewaterhouse. And then, like many of the jobs I moved to, uh, I got a phone call from a recruiter who said, um, you know, I'm looking for somebody uh, to join the Frito-Lay International Division of PepsiCo. And of course, who doesn't know PepsiCo and Frito-Lay? And, uh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds both promising and delicious. Absolutely. <laughs> and it was. And it was. I ended up spending 12 years with them. Um, Net-net, I did move across to them. It was PepsiCo. It was an international job. Uh, here's a funny story. You know, they hired me, of course, because of my qualifications and all of that, but also because I was, uh, quote unquote, international. And the funny part is I had grown up in India and I had moved to the United States. And that was the extent of my international exposure at that point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 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 uh, but PepsiCo um, uh, is just an incredible company. I've had the good pleasure of uh of, of doing some work for them, uh, as well. And actually for Frito-Lay, um, uh, specifically, and, uh, it, it's really a, a monumental enterprise. You know, it was a monumental enterprise then, and it's a monumental enterprise today. I have the highest regard for that company. Uh, I spent 12 years there. I really, really learned a lot working with them every single day. 
And the reason was that they put you into business situations where you had to learn. Uh, and if you wanted to learn and if you wanted to succeed through real business results, uh, it was a great place to be. Uh, so in 12 years, I had five different roles. I started out in Dallas uh, in a pure accounting role because I was trying to get my CPA. I wanted one heavy duty accounting job. Uh, that lasted uh, all of one year because it was all hands on deck. Frito-Lay International was growing dramatically through acquisitions, uh, quickly got sucked into M&A transactions, uh, doing deals, helping on deals, uh, working on business planning. Uh, and it was a period of rapid growth for the international business. That first assignment very quickly led to an international assignment because I moved, uh, one of the deals I worked on was uh, getting Frito-Lay into Egypt and the Middle East markets. That resulted in an offer to move. I moved to Cairo, Egypt uh, as a CFO uh, of the company we had just acquired there. Uh, and that was a tremendous experience. You know, besides um, spending three years in Cairo and learning a lot about the culture and the people there, uh, it was uh, about being a leader uh, in a growing company. That was my first C-level role. I learned a lot, lots of team building, lots of business models. I actually led a project to bring Lay's potato chips into Egypt, uh, which was a tremendous learning experience. Uh, once again, had a great boss, you know, who is still a friend <laughs> and who I communicate with regularly. What was that like? I mean, you, you were you were reasonably young and you're going, um, as you say, you know, maybe from Frito-Lay's perspective, you were international, but here you, yes. uh, you weren't that international as you say, and, uh, yes. <laughs> and, and, and going, uh, to Cairo, um, to take over, um, uh, running a business. Uh, what was that like? It was, you know, it was an incredible experience. Let me start with that. Uh, I think what made it successful is that, Two of the skills that I really learned early in life was having empathy uh, for people. And the second thing was listening to people. Uh, that played out well, has, has played out well throughout my career. Uh, because I, I have genuine empathy for people and their situations, their desires. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I do truly listen to people uh, when, when they have something to say. Uh, and through that process, you really build bridges across cultures. And the third element, of course, being having respect for people's different cultures. Uh, I did that when I first came to the United States. Uh, it was, you know, the country was new to me in the sense of living there. Uh, the culture wasn't new. I'd had a lot of exposure to that in, uh, in India. But I also worked on Poland uh, in my first assignment. I worked on Eastern Europe, worked on the UK. Uh, and then move, so moving to Egypt was about, uh, once again, empathy, listening skills, respect for the culture. And that's what made it successful because people were willing to, you know, not follow, but to go along with me. Yeah, absolutely. I don't like followers. I like people who go with me. Were, were most of the people you were leading Egyptian? They were all local. Yes, they were all Egyptians. And many of them, you know, were excited to be working with uh, with an international company like PepsiCo, 
it was a bridge to building, you know, real careers for them uh, within Egypt or in the Middle East or outside of the Middle East. So they were always very excited to interact with somebody from outside to learn new skills, to do new things and to move in new directions. So that was transformational for me, too, because, you know, for the first time in my career, I was actually leading my own team uh, and I was the CFO. So which is, you know, a senior management role there reporting to the CEO. So uh, people were looking to you, you know, for direction, for leadership, for uh, analysis. Uh, and and I learned an awful lot awfully quickly, uh, I have to say, because in PepsiCo, the goal is, you know, take the opportunity, run with it, build something that's meaningful. I use the word meaningful a lot because that's something uh, I really believe in. It's important to do things that are meaningful to you and to the people around you. And so that's what Egypt was. You know, in three years, we established the company. Uh, we brought uh, at least three Frito-Lay products into the country, uh, which was basically Cheetos, Doritos, and then Lay's potato chips. Uh, we built a whole new plant. Uh, we started looking at acquiring a large competitor to solidify our position. And uh, along with that, also did some other work in the Middle East region. And uh, uh, along with the Pepsi, the Frito-Lay uh, uh, Lay's chips introduction, I also learned an awful lot about how to grow potatoes. <laughs> so what, what, uh, now, now you got to explain, why, were you growing potatoes in, in, in Egypt? So, so, you know, Frito-Lay has very high quality standards. And those standards don't apply only in the United States. It applies globally. So they, they had on the payroll, you know, some really great agronomists. And part of their job was to make sure that we were growing the perfect potato. Uh, so in order to launch Lay's potato chips in Egypt, we had to make sure we had the right quality and type of potato. Uh, so that eventually when you cut and fry them, you know, you don't have holes and black spots and all that stuff that goes speaks to the quality of the product. So there's actually a three year potato seed program you have to go through, you know, to get the right potato seeds to plant in Egypt. So there's a whole program uh, that takes almost three years where we took seed potatoes from Greece. You know, we, we uh, grew more seed potatoes, brought them across to Egypt signed contracts with farmers, planted them, took the first crop, reseeded them. It's a long process. But the net result is the perfect potato chip. Wow. Well, uh, and and I would like to say this is brought to you by PepsiCo and Frito-Lay, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. That's right. So three years at, at Frito-Lay Egypt, wonderful experience. And uh, then um, PepsiCo typically every two or three years, you know, will ask you if you want to move. Uh, so it was time to move. You know, at that time I was, I was working on my U.S. citizenship. It was important to come back to the U.S. for one, you know, decent stint of time. So I came back uh, to New York, New York area. And I was uh, the head of planning for Asia Pacific. Uh, I spent two weeks a month on a plane in Asia, heading out to Asia and being in Asia. And uh, on that assignment, I worked on China. I worked on every market you can think of, India, Thailand, Indonesia, Australia, where we did a deal, uh, Japan, and so on and so forth. 
So uh, heavy, heavy exposure to two or three things, established businesses like the one in Australia, as well as startup businesses such as the ones in India and China, uh, and then sort of intermediate businesses uh, in between in Thailand, Taiwan, and these kind of places. Yeah, and, 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 and uh, Trip, just so people can understand what you're describing when you're talking about that kind of international business planning. Um, can you explain the kind of things you're looking at? You're, I'm guessing you're looking at, at supply chain issues and distribution issues. You're looking at branding issues, um, uh, trying to enter markets. Gee, China at that time, was it was not so easy to enter that market, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so it began with, you know, writing strategy, working with the uh, heads of these companies, the heads of the regions on developing appropriate strategies for each market. Um, secondly, with my finance hat on, it was making sure that they had the right reporting systems, the right planning processes, and the right people, you know, in the right roles uh, in order to be able to execute at a world-class level like the rest of the PepsiCo companies around the world. Because you, you can't have different standards for different companies, regardless of uh, size, right? Reporting is reporting, uh, strategy is strategy, quality is quality. And then the other piece of it uh, uh, was about branding, was about quality control, uh, ensuring that uh, processes and procedures you know, were in place to, to uh, ensure uniformity of quality. But the other great thing about PepsiCo and Frito-Lay was that they were very willing to adapt to the market. So in India, for example, you know, the, the breakthrough product that allowed that company to eventually grow uh, was the adaptation of local products uh, and adding the element of quality and packaging to it. And it was a hit in that market which then led to the introduction of other Frito-Lay products. Uh, and so in India, if you go to India, you'll have masala chips. Uh, well, you, you won't find those in the United States because we don't eat masala chips here. But, uh, but the point was that they were, they were really a great company. I have the highest respect for them because they were willing to figure it out. Uh, and uh, they were willing to try new things. And, um, and that was certainly reflected uh, in my experiences uh, in Asia. And then uh, moving on to the last two assignments with PepsiCo, um, the next assignment I came back to uh, the New York area and I uh, joined Pepsi, I transferred to Pepsi Cola International. And I worked, uh, you'll find this interesting, you know, Frito-Lay was really the growth vehicle for PepsiCo. Uh, Pepsi is the best known brand name at PepsiCo, right? But it wasn't the fastest growing, it was Frito-Lay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And and my recollection is that for a while, PepsiCo had a restaurant company uh, with, um, uh, was it KFC and Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, right? Exactly, exactly, which was spun off to become Yum Brands. But, uh, but you know, they were willing to take big decisions. You know, the Yum Brand spinoff was one example of that. You know, it was a big chunk of uh, PepsiCo's sales. And uh, yet they looked at it strategically and said, you know what, we're better off spinning it off. And they did it. Uh, so, you know, a lot of respect for them. Uh, Pepsi-Cola was a great experience as well. You know, I worked on about half of the Pepsi-Cola world uh, acquisitions, um, you know, um, 
trying to put bottling businesses together, uh, lots of interaction with the senior management at uh, corporate PepsiCo. Let, let me just ask you about that. So when you're when you're doing acquisitions, I mean, people think, well, there's Pepsi and then there's Diet Pepsi and then there's, you know, <laughs> whatever there, you know, but what does it look like to be doing acquisitions there? You, you zero in on bottling businesses. Is that because of the way um, uh, bottling was more diffuse at that time? So, so bottling, uh, the bottling side acquisition activity is different from the snack food uh, M&A activity. And I'll tell you why in just one second. Uh, in the case of Frito-Lay M&A activity, it was about buying companies that had uh, a branded or you know not so branded uh, base in the country that we wanted to enter with manufacturing facilities and some basic brands and people and so on. And uh, we acquired them because we thought we could inject the Frito-Lay brands and do better. The, the cola side has been around a lot longer. And so if you look at many of the bottling networks around the world, they've been in place for quite a while. So I, I don't want to give out too much information, even though it's a little dated, but uh, a lot of those are franchise operations. So M&A activity in that world uh, focused on two or three things. Number one, encouraging two or more bottlers to unite through an M&A transaction which you engaged in to help them make it happen uh, and become a bigger and stronger bottler. So that was one type of M&A activity, so to speak. Uh, the second thing is obviously the bottling network is not healthy everywhere in the world. Uh, and yet there are markets you have to make sure you're still in. Uh, and so in one case, for example, uh, without naming the country, uh, we actually went in and, uh, and bought out the bottler. So that involved, you know, understanding the business, valuation, working a deal, buying the company, putting in place a management team. Uh, and that was a, a straight M&A transaction with a purpose, which was we don't want the bottler to fail uh, in this market. And so and we want to be in the market. So let's let's buy them out and then maybe we franchise it later. Um, OK, so then so here you are, you're still at Pepsi and. At some point, you make this move to retail. Yeah, I uh, my last assignment was in corporate strategy, which was great. I mean, it was a great time, but I really wanted to go back into an operating job. Okay? I didn't want to sit around headquarters, you know, uh, working on important, interesting things, but I, I enjoy the leadership side of things, and I wanted to get back into an operating role. And uh, right about that time, uh, again, a wonderful recruiter called, right? Uh, and said, you know, hey, are you interested in joining limited brands? And I, frankly, I, other than as a customer, I knew nothing about retail. But it was interesting because two or three of my friends were already working there, ex-PepsiCo people. And the CFO of limited brands at the time was ex-PepsiCo as well. And so that, that made it easier to say, yeah, I'd like to hear more about this. And so um, what they offered me was a job at headquarters once again in, in a pretty important role. But I said, you know what? I don't want a headquarters role. Give me a division. And so they gave me a division. All right. It was a turnaround business. It, it was the original, uh, you know, Les Wexner uh, inspired business, which was called, and you, you would remember it, it was called The Limited, which was the original division. 
And because it was near and dear to the corporation's hearts, they didn't want to shut it down. They wanted to save it. Uh, and so I came in there as a CFO uh, of a turnaround business. I spent uh, almost three years there, although eventually, many years later, Limited was sold and shut down and all of that. Uh, in that three-year period, we actually brought it back to profitability, uh, which I'm very proud of. Uh, it wasn't me. It was the whole team. Uh, and I learned an awful lot about two or three things. Uh, the first thing I learned a lot about was specialty retailing. Once again, had a great boss who took me in, under his wing, and he taught me a lot about specialty retailing, all the way from you know how, how do designers decide what kind of fabric is going to be in vogue the next season or the next year, and then, you know, what sort of prints and colors? I mean, as a CFO, this is what I was learning. What colors are going to work? You know, what kind of fabric? And, uh, you know, what are the styles? Because what you're bringing, the transferable skills you were bringing to the table there uh, were the CFO skills, right? And the reporting, uh, the financial reporting, financial planning. Um, but, but, but here you're also now learning a whole new industry. You know, I, I never wanted to be in a job where I wasn't learning uh, about the business. Um, and the good news here was the CEO actually wanted me as his partner, you know, to really help him uh, manage this business, bring it back to profitability. So as the CFO, you know, it was, uh, for example, one of my biggest areas of responsibility was managing inventory making sure that inventory was cycled out successfully uh, through the season and at the end of the season, making sure that we were managing order flow. Uh, that was a big piece of my job. So to be able to go into a, a, a Monday morning meeting with all the merchants and to be able to have opinions about what was working and not working also necessitated knowing what the heck we were buying why we were buying them, et cetera. Because the, the one uh, authority and responsibility I had was to say, hey, here's merchandise X, it's not selling. We put it into the market three weeks ago and the uh, selling run rate is really low. And uh, I see that there are three orders about to be cut and on the way, cancel them. Yeah, because, because if the business is in financial distress, you, you've you got to be really watching the inventory, right? Absolutely. You know, the, the thing with the, this particular turnaround business was it's not about just chopping heads. Okay, You know, turnarounds are not about chopping heads uh, and saving expenses. Well, sometimes a little bit. Sometimes. And we did that. And we did that because we closed 200 stores. Okay? Uh, uh, you know, uh, loss-making loss stores. So, yes. So you do have to do that, uh, but you do it not because not for the sake of cutting heads and saving expenses. You do it because you're rejiggering the financial model and the business model. So inventory is really the biggest piece of making sure you're successfully managing sales and inventory and not ending up with a bunch of write-offs at the end of the season. So great learning experience, uh, really enjoyed it. Again, a leadership experience because I had a finance team, and at the same time, it was a very influential position, uh, particularly at that point in time uh, with the turnaround. 
but influential and being a CFO doesn't mean you tell people what to do. You work with them. Uh, and I think that's what made it a success. Again, the willingness of people to listen. And you'd say that uh, that the, that you had a CEO who uh, really wanted you as a partner, which is really important because sometimes, you know, if a CFO is imposed upon a CEO in a turnaround situation, I mean, I've known plenty of CEOs in that situation where, you know, they have to worry that the CFO is looking over their shoulder. You know, that's how it started in this role, Bruce. Uh, because I, I, I was never, ever told, you know, go check on him. That's not the, the case. But initially, you know, he thought that's why I was there. And so uh, I worked at making sure he understood that I was there to help him uh, and help the business succeed and not to be a spy. So, you know, you got to build trust in every job you go into. And the only way you can build that trust with people is to be yourself, to be honest and to be straight up. And I, and I think people respect that and appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's right. And boy, when you have a, uh, a CEO who's in that kind of turnaround situation, having a CFO you can really trust uh, and partner with, um, you know, that's the difference between succeeding and failing. Right. And a CFO who can tell you, no, I think that's the wrong idea. It's equally important, right? Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. So, um, okay. So how long were you there? So I was there, again, I'm rounding up, I'm thinking rounding up or down, but about about three years. Uh, and then I got recruited out of there uh, to Macy's, um, and specifically Macy's, uh, Florida, uh, which is how I moved to Miami uh, in 2002. Basically, they were looking for uh, a president-level you know, succession plan, so they started speaking to me about six, seven months before I actually moved there. Uh, and uh, then six months later, they had a real job opening, uh, happened to be in Miami, Florida. And uh, the next thing I know, I, I met uh, the chairman, Jim Zimmerman, who was a terrific guy, Terry Lundgren, who succeeded him, another terrific guy, uh, Sue Kronick, uh, who was, became you know, my direct uh, boss at Macy's. You know, I moved down to Florida. I spent five years with uh, Macy's Florida, a very pleased and proud of my experience during that time. Proud not for me, proud for the team, because it was the best performing division at Macy's. Uh, we had a lot of leeway to do things because we were in a fashion forward market like uh, Florida. Uh, it was a very profitable business, double digit operating profits. Uh, and um, it was a big team. You know, eventually it was a $2 billion business. Uh, 11,000 employees, you know, 50, 60 uh, department stores and furniture stores and thriving. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. It was a major leadership experience for me. Um, you know, I was uh, speaking to the team every Monday. I was speaking to the team at our quarterly meetings. Huge amount of interaction with people, all ages, all levels. Um, and, uh, and I really, really loved the five years there. It was, uh, it was a good, good five years. Also learned a lot about department store retailing along the way. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's so, um, uh, when, when you bring a skill set uh, like you do into an organization, um, that is sort of the broad, you know, increasingly, of course, executive, um, strategy and leadership, uh, but but bringing that financial planning, financial reporting, 
uh, bringing that skill set into an organization, it is transferable. But here, then you, you you have a chance to learn, as you say here, that you know department store retailing. Um, you know, for for young people listening today, back in the old days, we used to have these things called department stores. But but the, the way you learn about um, uh, it's just such an incredible thing to learn each new business. Absolutely. You know, your skills, I, I, would, I would tell anybody, your skills are always transferable. Uh, don't, don't ever get pigeonholed into one industry or the other, because if you have a broad, if you develop a broad set of skills, you can apply it almost anywhere. Uh, and that's why sometimes when I look at some job postings uh, that people are applying for and I say, oh, must have X industry experience. And I'm like, why? Uh, you should want somebody who's got broader experience because they can bring that to the table when they join your company. Yeah, although I, I guess that tells you a lot about uh, whoever's doing the recruiting. It tells you a lot about how they look at uh, talent and how they look at the, the role uh, for which you're being recruited. Absolutely. You know, there's no question there's a learning curve every time you join a new company, of course. Uh, but I would say even within the same industry, there's going to be a learning curve when you join a new company. Cultures differ, people differ. Uh, you have to earn your stripes, gain credibility before you can do things. That's that's universal. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. Uh, what you may know is something about the industry that helps you uh, hit the ground running faster. But those are learned skills too. I mean, you can learn it pretty fast if you've got a mind to. And so... Uh, I think the other great thing about Macy's Florida is it allowed me to to set up my home here in Miami. Uh, my wife was delighted uh, because she uh, she grew up in Singapore and Malaysia, so she loves Miami because of the heat and humidity and the vegetation of all things. <laughs> so, well, well, you know, listen, there's there's a reason why people move there. That is true. So that was 2002, and we although I moved, you know. A couple of times since then, we've always had a home and our primary home in Florida, uh, and that's where I'm back at now. And and so, uh, can you? Um, I know what you're doing uh, these days is building um, a CEO advisory practice, and um, uh, maybe you can explain, you know, uh, to the uninitiated. Uh, what kind of advice do CEOs need? I always joke when when I'm you know usually I'm brought in uh, or often I'm brought in at the behest of a CEO and when people are trying to to crack the code I always say you know you have to learn to speak CEO. But from your perspective, you know how would you uh, you know it, it can be lonely at the top, right? Yeah, sure. So, you know, what happens is when you, uh, you know, I've been in CEO roles and I know that when you first get into it, it can be pretty daunting uh, because on the one hand, you've got a large group of people looking to you and saying, aha, here's the, here's the, whatever it may be, let's say it's a turnaround, or here's the savior, right? Or uh, you're certainly going to have people saying, who the hell is this guy, right? Uh, so, so there are different constituencies, the people who put you in that job, the board, uh, expectations are always high. Uh, and you come into that role, either you've been promoted into that role, uh, and I would say the challenges are somewhat different, but not very much so, okay? Uh, because you're in a new role. 
uh, or you come from the outside where you don't have the benefit of having grown up in the organization. Uh, so you've got the added uh, challenge of integrating into the company. But the challenge is the same. You're in a leadership role. Uh, your, your first reaction is, I need to do this myself because otherwise it's a sign of weakness. And that, I would say, is not the right answer. The right answer is you've got to reach out to everybody who can help you succeed in that role. Even if you've been a CEO before, uh, joining a company is, as a CEO is still a daunting experience. Uh, and you, you need all the help you can get. So when you look at what I'm trying to do now with Kaufman Rawson, uh, yes, I can do the uh, projects that involve M&A. I can do projects that involve you know, data analysis. Uh, I can do projects that center on strategy. Absolutely, I've, I've got that background and experience and it's something I bring to the table uh, uh, when, I, when I talk to CEOs or boards or shareholders. But I think as important is having the CEO know there's somebody they can turn to uh, if there's a question or an issue or an idea they want to bounce off somebody who's independent. And knowing that they can get a point of view that is considered thoughtful and reliable. Not always right, but <laughs> considered point of view that might be different from yours and gives you food for thought. And I think just knowing you have somebody like that at hand who can help you. Uh, and the same holds true for helping a board uh, or helping a shareholder. Uh, having an experienced, unbiased resource who you can turn to, who has been in situations like that, who has the breadth of experience uh, that's needed, uh, and who can give you insightful advice, I think is a powerful uh, thing. Yeah, I think it's it's um, it, it's tremendous, and um, you know it's so hard. I think for CEOs uh, to turn to their even their senior executive team because everyone has a dog in 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 the fight, you know. So so having uh, an independent um, third party, uh, an outside expert who can give them both the good news and the bad news uh, is so powerful. And, and you know, uh, the experiences I have around being in staff positions, being in strategy positions, being in roll up the sleeves and get your hands dirty operating roles uh, are, are all great experiences. And finally, I would say I have had the good fortune to work for some really terrific companies, Fortune 500 type companies, and you do learn a lot there. And those learnings are very transferable to smaller companies, to medium-sized companies. And I think that's, that's the uh, X factor in what I'm trying to now drive at Kaufman Rawson, is to say, you know what? You may not have access to this breadth of skills and people within your organization, but if you're a small to medium growing company, uh, you absolutely have access through people like me at Kaufman Rawson uh, to be able to understand how Fortune 500 companies do it and to translate it to your situation. So you could emerge from this with best practice corporate governance on your board. You could emerge with a really strong, informed team. Uh, you could uh, emerge with some great strategic thoughts and thinking, uh, and certainly all of the platforms that are needed to run the business. 
Yeah. And I think, look, you know, um, uh, the old fashioned role of being a consigliere, you know, is, is, um, not to be underestimated that, uh, having, um, you know, sometimes I find with some of my clients, you know, what, uh, they, you know, they get to know me, they trust me, they, they trust my judgment. It's, you know, um, uh, I'm never going to be the one who, uh, is going to bring the, the, bleeding edge, uh, you know, consulting team and tools to the table, it's judgment and trust, uh, that people are looking for in an, in an advisor. Absolutely. And see, that's why, at least for what I'm doing, I don't like using the word consultant because it implies a hands-off approach. I like the word advisor. Consigliere is even better <laughs> because it means I'm in it with you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you know, you you emphasized earlier in our conversation that some of your earliest uh experiences uh you brought to bear your empathy, your ability to empathize with others, your ability to put yourself in their shoes and understand how they're feeling and what they might be experiencing. Um and uh now sort of in this stage of your career I'm guessing that that is still serving you very, very well. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, fortunately, it's something I, you know, we, we aren't born with all these skills, right? You you get exposure to them, you learn them, you practice them, you make mistakes sometimes, but you keep keep sharpening the the saw, right? Uh, as as you go along. So, so the point is that if those are good skills and they're proven to be good skills, then you should apply them to whatever business situation you're in, whether as a CEO or an advisor. You know, the, those skills are universal. Empathy, uh, listening, uh, learning from others, and, um, and, and doing. I think those are all very important skills. And taking people along with you. This idea that people report to you is never something that I've subscribed to ever. And it's always you're working with people, you're, you're working towards a goal together. Uh, I think that's so much more powerful and impactful and meaningful, if I might say. Yeah. And so, so, um, and, and some of the meaning, I mean, you know, you were talking about uh, looking at the meaning uh, your creating in your roles and the, the, the meaningfulness of your experiences when you're talking about bringing Cheetos to market, but, but the meaning um, can also be about the effect you have on your colleagues, on the people who do report to you, on the people who rely on you. A lot of the meaning in work can come from the relationships and helping other people make a contribution to the, to the mission and uh, helping them uh, feed their family and all. You know, one of the most satisfying things I would say about my career experiences has been helping people grow and develop. Doesn't matter, you know, uh, what age you are. Doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. Uh, none of that matters. What matters is that you have a desire to learn and grow. And I love helping people like that uh, succeed and grow because I love getting the same treatment from people around me. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me help you succeed. Uh, other, other things I receive from good bosses and good colleagues and good employers around me. And I love doing the same for people. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and that, you know, it's, it's vivid in, in uh, 
just how you carry yourself, how you conduct yourself. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let me ask you this. If, if, if you're going to uh, give people, if you were going to leave people with sort of a, uh, an elevator uh, speech uh, version of, you know, how to succeed or, you know, people look at you, you know, how do I get to be like this guy? Uh, what, what's your sort of takeaway advice for people? The first piece of advice that I have is, uh, I've, I've said this a few times to, to a few people, which is when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Okay, <laughs> that, that's advice number one. Don't be, don't be afraid to move in new directions. Don't be afraid to take on the next challenge. Uh, and uh, don't, don't be afraid to where it's going to take you. Of course, do your homework. Of course, do all of that. But, but I've always been guided by that. And hence the moves and hence the overseas moves. Uh, you know, after, after Macy's and all of that, I actually moved to Istanbul for three and a half years and uh, then back as CEO of the America's business. But the point is that I was willing to make those moves. Uh, and fortunately, I had a wife who was willing to support those moves too. Uh, so make sure your partner is on board with you. <laughs> the, the second thing is a piece of advice is, you know, be, be yourself. Always be yourself. You know, we, we have certain skills that we're born with. There are certain skills we develop. And the only thing we can do is do our best, right? Uh, do our best. Uh, you know, if, uh, if you need a genius for the job and you're not a genius, well, then, then you're not a genius. Don't pretend to be one. Be who you are. Play to your strengths. Uh, work, you know, work hard. I think that's important. It's always important. Uh, be sincere and, and tell it like it is. So even in uncomfortable situations, uh, whether it's uh, giving feedback to somebody who works with you or whether it's giving feedback to your boss about a business situation, be straight up. People respect it. It may hurt you sometimes. May hurt your career sometimes, but you'll sleep very well at night. I can assure you of that, um, and I think people will respect it, uh, and your career will grow. I agree with that. I think authenticity is so important. And the last thing I would say is always be willing to learn. So read, uh, inquire, you know, ask. Uh, you don't know everything, so there's no harm in asking, reading, looking, uh, and exploring. Uh, and eventually you learn about something or the other, which will be useful uh, in your career. Well, that is uh, superb advice. And uh, I think uh, it sounds like it rhymes perfectly with the path that you have taken. Thank you so much, Bruce. Uh, it's been an exciting path, uh, I have to say, but I didn't plan any of it. The, when I came to the fork in the road, I took it. <laughs> when you come to the fork in the road, take it. Trip to Fassi. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great. Thank you so much. In our next episode, I'll talk with Ron Lieber, the personal finance journalist at The New York Times. We talked about a lot of things, including his new book, The Price You Pay for College. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. 
And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.